All right. Woo! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Great to be with you guys. Very excited about uh, today, excited about our series, excited about you guys being here. There are football games. Some of you have told everybody, don't you wish that there was a shirt that just said, don't tell me I'm, re- I'm recording the game? Because that's like a lot of you in here, I realize that. People, people are going to say, let's go to lunch together. And, after, and you're going to say, I'm not going to any place that has a television because I don't want to know until I get home. So I know that's all you people, and I, I stand with you, my people. So if you know results or you're watching, because you get bored during the message, you start watching the game on your little... What NFL network phone thing? God knows that you're doing that, okay? Um, <laughs> glad you guys are here. I, um, I, one thing I wanna let you know about is right now, our, as, you, as you, you know, this is the end of the week, or depending how you look at it, it's the beginning of the week, but you're, my guess is you're probably a little tired. You're gonna have some moments where you go, I'm really tired and I'm gonna need to rest. I just want you to keep that in mind. But the moment you feel like, oh, I'm tired. Okay, our, um, our junior high ministry is away at camp and they have adult volunteer leaders who are with them leading them through that camp experience. And you do, until you volunteered at like a high school, junior high camp, you do not know tired. So I'll let you know. So it's like, you know, they're exactly like that baby just said. They're exhausted. So as you think about them, you can be praying for our junior high leaders and our junior high students. You know, we believe that we believe in camp. We believe God changes people's lives being away for a little bit. You know, in, when you're older, you call it a retreat and you don't have as many like water balloons and goldfish or whatever else. When you're older, you call it a retreat. When you're a junior high, it's a, it's a camp and it really does change people's lives. And so... We have a series right now called Unleash the Impossible, and probably for a lot of those uh, leaders, they're going, the impossible thing is that I could stay awake, you know, for just one more day. So you be praying for those guys. All right. Um, we are in a series called Unleash the Impossible. This, um, for those of you who are with us last week, I, I mentioned this. Uh, Unleash the Impossible was born out of a, a leadership conversation we had with uh, a number of folks at our various churches, Mariners is five churches. And uh, we had a conversation here and with our leaders and said, this is what this year is going to look like. And a lot of the leaders said, you probably need to tell that to the whole church. And so, okay, let's, let's see what that might look like. And so that's what this is. Basically what it means is that there's an impossible life, an impossible kind of life for the people that are connected to Jesus. And there's all these things that God wants to do in and through us that we would otherwise say impo- that would be impossible without him. And so to consider that, just to give you an idea, there's this verse Jesus says, we talked about it last week. This is right at the Last Supper. Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and he tells his disciples Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Now, just think about what they've seen. They've seen Jesus, you know, heal people um, from being deaf. He's seen people, he's seen them restore sight to the blind. They've seen Jesus heal people of, um, uh, you know, they've been possessed by demons. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's, they've seen him, Super Bowl party, changed water into wine. And they're like, this guy's odd. He's done a lot of stuff. And he says to them, you'll be able to do that stuff, already impossible, and they will do even greater things than these. Whoa. Which means the church, the people who follow Jesus, these group of people called disciples, get to do amazing stuff that's otherwise impossible. And so that's been kind of the the banner verse for or at least one of them as we talk about this series of Unleashing the Impossible. So very excited about it. Looking forward to it. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's message. Father, we are grateful for you. We're grateful that we get to come here. We get, we're grateful that there is a, um, there's a life you call us to, which is not predictable, that it is not boring, that it is not one which is, even in some ways, we're grateful that it's not always safe. We're grateful that you call us to a life of adventure. And Jesus, um, if there's anything that's in common in here, it's that all of us, every single person in this room, is not perfect. Far from it. Every one of us is a work in progress. Every one of us is in need of your great mercy. 
And so, Father, you know, I know a lot of folks came in here not looking today for more adventure, but looking for hope and restoration. And Jesus, we know and believe that that hope and restoration comes first and foremost in an understanding of your great mercy and love for us. And so maybe for just a second as we pause every week, just for maybe 10 seconds or so, we pause that you might speak to us about how deeply you love us and how deeply you want us to know and be aware of your mercy for us. So just a few seconds, God, that you might speak to us. Lord, we're in need of mercy. We're in need of grace. And we're in need of restoration and hope. So might that that be apparent today as we sing, as we respond, as we learn, as we celebrate. Might we receive it deeply that um, you would give to us love and restorative mercy. In your name, amen. All right, hey, when you came in, you got a bulletin and that bulletin is an outline. If you want to pull that out, you can follow along. Um, for those of you who want to just look on the screen, everything you need will be on the screen. And um, if you want to look maybe in a Bible or in, you know, maybe you brought a device to take a look at, it will be in, in John chapter 9 and in First um, Peter chapter 2. So if you want to either put a thumb in there or put a bulletin or something in there, that's where we're going to be in your Bible. Now, this week, um, this week there was kind of some big news. Two, two guys climbed to the top of El Capitan in Yosemite. You guys hear about this, right? Kind of big news. There was, a, um, you know, I guess, I don't know much about climbing, but I guess this is kind of like a really unique way in which they did it, which... They, you know, there's like, I guess what they do is called free climbing, and there's other people who have climbed this, uh, climbed this, this monolith, this, this rock. They've climbed it before, but they did it by like making their own like footholds. They're like, well, we can't climb here, and they just hammer in a nail and then hike up over it. But these guys did it without doing any of that stuff. Very amazing stuff. There's lots of news about these guys. You know, you, I have a picture put on the screen, but I can put it up on the main screen. There's this right here. These guys sleep and rest and hang out in these things right here. Nice and relaxing. I mean, I, I had dreams when I went to like summer camp as a kid of falling off of a bunk bed. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's just, cra- and they're like talking about, there's like, you know, gale force winds up there and stuff. It's like, no way, I'm not doing that. But they, you know, they, they eat up there. There's one news outlet that said what these guys did was they, were doing, they would practice yoga in there because they had to stay limber to keep, <laughs> to keep climbing. <laughs> What's the position it's called where you just stay mobilized, still laying totally just on your back sleeping? That's all I got, you know, because I don't know how else you do that. You know, whatever you do, bend your leg over your head. I'm not doing that. I'm not, nothing requiring balance at a thousand feet over the ground am I trying to do, you know. But, they, the, you know, you look at this and you go, my gosh, these guys are amazing. This is really incredible stuff. They, you know, they started December 29th. Someone told me last service they actually were, they were there over New Year's and saw, the, saw these guys climbing. And they said this thing is like, the smallest, tiniest speck of a thing. You would never know unless you're looking for it that this is actually their, where they're sleeping. But you look at something like that. They eat there. They sleep there. And all of this stuff, they climb every day. Their hands are bleeding. They do this for 19 days in a row. And there's a question that really that kind of encapsulates this whole adventure, which is this. How in the world did they go to the bathroom? Because <laughs> that's pretty intimate right there. And I have a, an idea of how they do that, but it's an incredibly horrifying vision that I have in my head of what this looks like. So there you go. Now, I, you know, this is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, I think there's a question we actually have, which is, why does this capture so many people's attention? 
Because when we look at something like this, I think we're kind of stuck with something that there is an irrepressible kind of magnetism that surrounds people who pursue the impossible. That regardless of what you think about whether or not they should have done it or whatever that might mean or all that kind of stuff, there's some curiosity about it. There's something about it that goes, what are they? There's something attractive about it. Jesus and his followers, you know, whether it was negative or, you know, positive press, had people who were paying attention to what they were doing. There was some impossible stuff that was going on and constantly people were following along and wondering what was going on. And in a lot of ways, I would say it this way, probably the most impossible thing is not the thing itself, but it's trying to explain the stuff that's happened. The most impossible thing probably asked of the disciples is, how do you give words to what happened? That might be harder than the thing itself, what happened. When people encounter an impossible thing that God does, there's basically three responses. They basically have three responses. They look at the thing and there's some, there's some level of being captivated by it. There's amazement, like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. There's a response that says, I'm, why in the world? I'm curious about that. And there's also a response that has sort of a critical, mocking kind of tone with it as well. Like, those people are morons, right? In fact, I'll give you an example, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But here's kind of these three reactions. Before I show you this, I'll show you what's happening. In Acts chapter 2, the, uh, Jesus has already, um, he's already you know, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit. He's now doing some work in people's life, and he, the Holy Spirit shows up in this super powerful way. The disciples are gathered up in a room. They're kind of holed up together, kind of, you know, saying, How, what are we going to do next? Holy Spirit arrives in this powerful way, and everybody starts speaking in languages that other people who don't speak those languages start understanding. They're like, whoa, we're hearing this noise. We're seeing this. And people are speaking in languages they don't speak, and people are understanding what they're saying. It's wild. Now, here's the reaction of people who hear all of these disciples speaking in these, these languages they didn't yet know. Here's what it says, verse 12, verse 12, amazed and perplexed. So you have people going, that's awesome. And that's curious. I've never seen that before. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine, which evidently, if you drink too much wine, you learn new languages. This is, I guess what they're trying to say. Some of you are like, I know I could, I know I could speak French. Just whatever. Now here's what they're, so they're looking at these guys going, that's amazing. Or what in the world's going on? Or <laughs> they're drunk. I mean, that's literally what the response is of the people who see what's going on. Now, there is kind of this typical response is what are we supposed to do? These people are amazed or curious or critical. And whenever God does something that's kind of amazing, we don't really know how to explain. We're wondering with whatever, whatever it might look like, whether it's your first time here, you're actually looking at people in the church and going, how do you guys intend to explain this stuff you're talking about? If someone brought you, you're here, you're like, I'm not sure, how do you explain first? Number one, there's a wall in this room. Does everybody not see that? Am I the only person who sees that? I get it. Trust me, I'm seeing it. But there's a part of us that says, how do you, if you're new, you're going to go, how do you explain all this stuff? I'm new to church and how do you explain it? And if you're someone who has already experienced what it's like to walk with God, you're asking the same question. How do I explain this to people? Because when I try to explain it, it sounds insane. It sounds so stupid. It sounds so bizarre. How do I put into words what God's actually doing? Because people who belong to Jesus, people who walk with him, have encountered something that's kind of inexplicable. And always we wonder, how do I explain this? I know how the world perceives when I say stuff. I know what it looks like that Christians have a reputation for saying stuff. But I don't know if it's really a sufficient explanation. How am I supposed to get around saying this? 
There's a landmark story in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus, which I think summarizes this idea in a really brilliant way. And some of you have heard this before, and you know, it's, you, maybe you didn't know that it actually came from the Bible. Maybe you thought it was kind of made up. But here's this, this story, and it's a, um, the story, I'll, I'll have to set it up a little bit, but it's all in John chapter 9. And there's this man Jesus encounters who is blind. And um, the disciples are kind of asking questions like, why is he blind? And what are we supposed to, you know, what do we do with this person? And who's in trouble? And all that kind of, Jesus basically says, look, I'm just going to show you God's glory right now. And then he does this thing. He spits on the ground, <laughs> which of all the methods Jesus could use to heal someone of blindness, this is what he does. Spits on the ground, makes a little like mud, which that means it requires a pretty fair amount of spit. Like just, he's standing over the, just, yeah, ooh, exactly. Like, what's he doing? Like, you guys, I got this. Jesus is like, I got this, you guys. I mean, you know, whatever. He's just doing, like, that's kind of, like, really? That seems like a lot of spit. Write that down. He spit a lot. You know, whatever. So he's spitting there, and he makes a little mud pie, and he puts it on this guy's face. On his eye, not his face. I'm like, shouldn't that go on my eyes? Yeah, I should go on here. So he put it on his eyes, and then he says to the guy, after he spit on the ground and rubbed it in his face, Go and wash, which the guy's like, yeah, I pretty much was going to do that no matter what you said, but thank you for the direction. Uh, so he's now got this spit mud on his eyes. He just tells him to go and wash, and he comes back, and he can see. That's the story. Now, there's a reaction, okay, because you've got to explain what just happened. So here's what happens. John 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, now the day in which Jesus had made the mud... Uh, the mother and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. So first thing, a couple things. One is this. Pharisees are people who are hyper-religious. Their basic belief is this. And it's not completely unfounded from, you could see why they'd get to this. Their belief is the reason why God hasn't rescued us from the Romans and every other person who's kind of conquering us is because we're not a righteous people. And so let's get back to like following God. And because there's 613 laws in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, there's 613 laws in there. We're going to need to add about 1,500 more to make sure we're really righteous. So that there's not, we even have, we have laws that protect us from breaking the laws so that we're so careful. So they're very religious people, incredibly precise in their religious ritual and following. And one of the like biggies is not doing stuff on the Sabbath. So there's like, there's a list of, I think there's about 39 things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. It's like things like you can't move a box from one place to another. You can't fill something. You can't tie two threads together. I mean, it's like nothing. So clearly what they're saying is healing's one of those things that's going to be an issue because this is what's happened on the Sabbath now. So check this out. This is this. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. So they asked the blind guy, the formerly blind, the artist formerly known as the blind guy. He, <laughs> he put mud on my eyes and the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Now check out the raining on a parade right here. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Like, I didn't used to be able to see. Now I can. That's wonderful, but he did it on the Sabbath. Doesn't count. <laughs> I don't know how it doesn't count. I, I can see now. I couldn't do that before. No, like, that's, that's really great. We, that's amazing. It's just, no, he did it on the Sabbath. What? Okay, next. But, check this out. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So now there's like a tennis match of arguing. It's a sin. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, I mean, like, this is great. No, it isn't. I mean, like, that's all. They're back and forth going. There's a division now because is it good that he healed on the Sabbath? Big debate. Happens all the time in Jesus' ministry. Next. John 17, 9, 17. Then they turned to the, again to the blind man and said, what do you have to say about this guy? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, uh, well, he's a prophet. 
So they're asking this, this kid, this man, what happened? And he goes, well, I've told you already before. He spit on the mud. It was awesome. Everybody kind of was like, what is that all about? He put it on my face. I washed off because what else would you do? And then I can see. That's the story. I couldn't see. My eyes are opened. I can see now. That's it. He must be a prophet. Verse, eight, verse 18. They still didn't believe that he had been blind. Maybe you just like to have people spit in your face. Maybe that's what happened. That's what really happened. You didn't actually, you weren't actually blind. It's all just an elaborate hoax. They still didn't believe he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the, for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How's it, how is it now that he can see? Now, I'll just fast forward the story a little bit. They kind of go back and forth. But basically, here's what they say. You ask him. Look, verse 23. His parents said, he's of age. You ask him. Like, we don't know the answer here. It sounds like he might have told you you're not accepting his answer, so you're asking us to tell you something else. You just ask him. Now, what he says is so great. Here's what he says. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. This guy's got to be getting tired of this now. And they say, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. And look at this guy's response. But he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Now, Often, when people are asked to give an explanation of their own faith experience, these are the three words they're afraid of the most. Actually, it's three words. One of them is a contraction, so three and a half words. I get it. Some of you are like, that's actually three and a half words. Okay. <clears throat> but I don't know has become the most feared expression to, in all the people who walk with Jesus. Because Jesus keeps saying to his, to his followers, you guys, tell my story. Talk about this. And everyone's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to say that. I don't know. They ask the guy, you had an encounter with Jesus. And he says, I don't know. And then he says this most clarifying thing. Here's the one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I can see. I don't know the answer to all your questions, guys. I don't know why you're all ticked off about this guy who healed me or everything else or what day he decided to make this healing happen. But I can tell you, I used to be one way and now I'm not that way. That's all I know how to explain. You see, people are being told by Jesus, people who follow him, tell people about me and they're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I don't know how to put it into words. I don't know, how the, I don't know the mechanism by which this works. This, this guy who's healed of his blindness, he doesn't, his parents don't have an explanation. Well, here's the logical thing. What happened was impossible, and he says, I don't know. My guess is that the upper 90% of this room has a microwave in your house. I, my guess is maybe one of you might know how a microwave actually works. I know that there's something in there. This is the, the only reason I know this is because it sounds like a transformer toy. There's something in there called a magnetron. And that thing nukes my food. And I know that I, my, my microwave, probably like yours, has a number of buttons and options. The only one I'm looking for is the 30-second button, which you can just add 30 seconds. You guys know high school students know what I'm talking about. It's like, why am I trying to find the popcorn ratio? Of, like, I don't know, like... One, two, three, four, five. That's enough 30 seconds in there. Whatever that is, that's what I want. That's all I'm doing. And I walk away, and then in a few minutes, a little beautiful sound, beep, boop, boop, beep, or whatever, and I go over there, and I open it up, and it's like boiling lava hot and also 
freezing cold in places too, but that's not that important. <laughs> oh my gosh, my mouth's on fire. Turn it around. Oh, it's, uh, it's good. You need to put it. It's ice. Now, I don't know how a microwave works. I just know, and my kids don't know, but my kids know where the 30-second button is. They can put stuff in there and burn it, right? I can do it too. Now, you don't know. I guess there's a lot of things in your life that are like that, but you know that things are one way, and then they get changed because they're in contact with this thing. The same thing is true of what's happening with Jesus here. People who follow Jesus' disciples don't have to be able to answer every single question that ever could come about. Because I'm talking, to, I'm talking to just those of you guys who are connected to Jesus. This is like you've already made a decision to follow Jesus. You kind of know you're like not perfect, and that's why you actually chose to follow Jesus, because he already knew and going to give you this kind of whatever. He's going to give you a life that looks beautiful and full. I'm talking to you guys for just a second. Jesus tells people like us to go and tell his story. And the problem for us is we're always paralyzed that we don't have enough words to be able to say it. And all we apparently need is to be able to say, I don't know. I once was this way, and now I'm different. I love the way our high school ministry talks about this. This is the way they say it. I love this. This is the question everybody needs to be able to answer. What's better about my life because of Jesus? What's better about my life because of Jesus? I don't have to know how everything became different. But the simple line that says, well, I used to kind of deal with some st- whatever it was that I used to be. I don't know how, it's, how, how I'm different now, but I, it might have something to do with Jesus. You know, I wasn't really connected in a church, and then I got connected to the church, and you know, I got introduced to Jesus, and I don't know, something's different about me. What's better about my life because of Jesus? That is a critical question. I think for a lot of us, we can say, well, I'm connected in church, I might be involved in some things, but really the, the critical factor, the change factor in anybody's life is Jesus. And it doesn't require us to know the mechanism or how it all works. We don't, we don't know. It just has something to do with Jesus. Somehow that's part of belonging to Jesus is being able to articulate that in some way. Not in really brilliant ways, but in some simple way of being able to articulate, well, I, I once was like this, and I guess because of Jesus I'm not like that anymore, or I'm becoming less like that, or whatever it might look like. I'll put it to you another way. I want to give to you just, again, this will be kind of like science nerd Sunday. So some of you guys are into that and we're all buddies and some of you, you know, not so much. And that's okay. It'll make sense. So just bear with me. Okay, here we go. So this is, this is the portion of the message, which is science nerd time. Okay, here we go. Now, if I asked you guys to tell me what the definition of a second is, more than likely what you'd come up with after a little bit of trying to figure out how to define a second, you would say like the unit of time, not like what comes after first. You're like, nailed it. Next question. Okay, no, the unit of time. <laughs> You come up with some fraction about the portion of a day, some division of the rotation of the earth or whatever like that. But let me tell you the actual definition of a second. That is the definition of a second. This is the internationally accepted used definition of a second. Listen to this. The second is the duration of 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels and the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. That's a handy little, like, you know, just hang on to that. <laughs> Your kids ask, how long is it going to be till we get to the next bathroom? Well, just multiply this times, what, you know, 60, and then multiply that times 60, and that should give you your basic idea of how long it's going to be. It's like, what? That's a second, okay? Check this out. 
Now, here's a handy definition for a meter. If I said, what's a meter? You'd go, it's 100 centimeters, which is basically 100 divisions of a meter, right? Or you go, well, it's like 39 or so inches or whatever. I don't know. It's about like that. You know, like that's, that's how we'd all kind of operate. But that's not precise enough. That's a meter. A meter is the length of the path traveled by light in a vacuum during the time interval of one 299,792,458th of a second. About how far is it from here to there? I don't know. It's about a two or 3,000 of that. I mean, that's like, what? That's so unhelpful. It's so imprecise, right? You just kind of want someone to go, this would be a meter. We're calling this a meter. That's a meter. Now, one more unit of measure. This is a kilogram. A unit of mass equal to the mass of the international prototype of the kilogram. <laughs> That's it. Any other questions about that? Now, let me, they even say it more difficult, like more challengingly than they need to. Basically, here's what it is. In France, there's the thing. It's a kilogram. If it weighs as much as that, it's a kilogram. I'm not kidding you. That's literally what it is. It's an object made, I just looked, it's, it's made up of 90%, what is it, platinum, I think? 90% platinum and 10% iridium. It's a sphere, a little like, actually, it's more like a cylinder. And there it is. There's this kilogram. And the way that, the reason why they had to make a standard was because of market. Like the, you know, merchant, you know, ships would come in and they'd make trades and they use the scales to sort of do that stuff. And the kilogram became the way in which they had to go, okay, we're all using the same scale, right? We're using this thing. It should all weigh as much as this. It makes you wonder why they didn't do that for a meter. Like, this is a meter now. It's like, no, no, no. It's like this whole vibrating cesium atom, whatever that is. But a kilogram is just this thing. Now, they're trying to, they, they, just now, in the 21st century, they're going, maybe we should have like a, a more annoying definition that's like longer. They're trying to figure that out now. But in order to, to accomplish all of the market, you know, merchant transactions, do all this stuff to accomplish all these things, they had to develop a way in which these, the kilogram could be transported around, but they didn't want to ever mess with it because people, so they made these copies, these other versions of it that people could have. And they called these things that told exactly what a kilogram was like, this word, the witnesses. So that everywhere, where everybody, wherever anybody conducted business, they could say, well, let me see one of the witnesses that I might be able to identify exactly what a kilogram looks like. That everywhere this witness went, people would say that's what a kilogram is. And so life and whatever kind of marketplace stuff needed to happen, trade could happen because of the witnesses. They told the story of what the kilogram was without ever having to move it. This kilogram, this, these witnesses and the kilogram still exist, and they're in a little glass container. Now, we need to hold on to this. Because look what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. He says this. Now, this is like, I should tell you, this is like the final moment before Jesus ascends into heaven. So this is like the final drop the mic moment. This is like the, I want to leave you guys with one thing, disciples, and here it is. But you, speaking to them, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which is coming pretty soon. And you, this is in in Acts chapter 2, you see it. And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to, the, and to the ends of the earth. Now, it's like this is the moment. They're like, well, they're asking all these questions about God's kingdom and all kinds of stuff. And he goes, hey, 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 Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, give you power. 
and you are going to tell the story, to live out the story of my life everywhere you go because you're going to be my witnesses. In other words, people will look at you and go, that's a representation of me. People will look at your life and go, that's what Jesus is like because you're the witness. Your story will be my story. And all of them, just like us, go, well, how are we supposed to talk about it? There's like a lot of crazy stuff you did that was like pretty much beyond explanation. And then just to like, just to like put it over the top, Jesus gives them one more thing they're not going to be able to explain. Acts 1-9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Like, you'll be my witnesses. See you later, you know, up, up and away. And then they're like, but I have one more thing I wanted to, ah, shoot. I can't see him. A cloud's hiding him from sight. And how do they explain that? How do they say to people, so Jesus said this to you? Yeah, he said it to you. Then what happened? Uh, are you familiar with Mighty Mouse or Superman, perhaps? He just, he just went straight up, and then we couldn't see him anymore. He went into heaven? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. I mean, how do you, it's so hard to explain this. Because so much of what it means to walk with Jesus defies explanation. And the explanations we give or are faced with or have heard before, particularly those of you who are new to church, are like, that doesn't really make that much sense. Even if I really press into it, it still doesn't make that, I don't get it. Because I think in some ways what we're trying to do is we're, we're looking at Christians and going, this is what, this is what well, Christians aren't perfect. We know that first of all. It's all of us belong to Jesus aren't perfect. But what we start realizing is what we're trying to do for those of us who walk with Jesus, we're trying to paint the picture not of Christians, but of Jesus. You see, the witness isn't to say, here's what all the other witnesses are like. The idea is to say, here's what Jesus is like. We have all kinds of anxiety about that because we might get it wrong. But our story is simple. I don't know. Once I was like this, and now I'm not like that I want to frame it just one more way. There's lots of ways you could talk about this story, the way that Jesus says, hey, go out and tell this story. Be my witnesses. Go out and do this work. You know, we live in a world where people are really nervous about talking about Jesus-y, religious-y stuff. They're just really nervous about it. Like, there's such a fear that at the moment you go to someone, you know, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to church. They might just say, ah, no, ah. Like, there's this fear that people have. That they're going to have this response to us. And I've never in my life heard of that response ever not once never no one ever said to me you know i was, I was in my, i was in the workroom it was horrible i was at the work and i just this person's getting a cup of coffee and i asked them if they might want to join me at church and they just immediately turned and burned my face with the coffee you know like, oh it's my melting don't ever say that word i've just never i've never heard of that experience doesn't mean it hasn't happened i'm sure people have had that experience. i just never heard of it that there's something about you, maybe perhaps, we're so afraid and so aware that, you know, hey, Jesus is a private spiritual experience. That's what God intended. Only, well, that's not what he intended. He keeps telling his people, go tell this story. Be my witnesses. I think we're afraid of the association with Christians. Let me tell you another way to frame this conversation. I think that might be a little bit more helpful. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's what's happening. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter's writing to a group of Christians. He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, let me just stop right here for a moment. He tells the church, 
He's actually quoting out of, out of the Hebrew Bible, out of Exodus, which is this is a promise for God's special people. He says, you have that promise. And here's what he says. You are a priesthood. Maybe you've heard this definition before, what a priest does. A priest stands between the people and God, and more or less, this is very simple, but more or less builds a bridge between those two people. People and God and builds a bridge, which he's saying to the people of the church, you build bridges. You guys, the people of the church, what you do is you stand between people and God and you go, let me help you guys find each other. That's the job. And he says it's so that God's praises might be declared. And he says, he kind of pushes us forward. And there's another step to this. I want you to catch this. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Let me tell you what this means. Sometimes you get the word nation or tribe describing the word people. Once you were a scattered group of like sort of people, and now you are a people. You are the people. You're it. Now I think for a lot of the church, and maybe you grew up with this experience, or maybe you've had encounters with this, this kind of experience in the past, which is this, that the church has very clearly defined itself as the people to the degree that everybody else gets to be excluded and never even be able to ask questions. We have the special language. We have special handshakes. Some of you don't even know the special handshakes. We don't have special handshakes. But there's, you know, there's all this sense of like insider protection that if anybody was to try to come in or maybe you're like, we kind of have it like, you know, when people want to come be a part of this, the people group, we start kind of doing, well, we had a few references perhaps. It would be wonderful. And we could get a past employment and, uh, you know, whatever. And if no one says, oh my gosh, I got in. This is so great. And my kids got in too. We're really excited. You know, it's like nobody talks about it that way. But we kind of actually treat it that way sometimes. But look what the, the definer of these people is. The thing that makes them the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, the thing that defines this group of people who belong to Jesus, who are supposed to be declaring these praises or being witnesses or telling that story of God in the world, the, one, the, the thing that defines them is that every single person who is connected to Jesus is connected to him because they are broken and they need mercy. Everybody. Which means nobody gets to say in any capacity, you know, I'm so grateful that I need a little less mercy than those people over there. Nobody gets to say, you know, I'm part of this people because um, I, <laughs> I behave a little bit better than they do and I'm, I'm a little bit less. In, no, no, no. Everybody's in need of mercy. Which means everybody is a work in progress. Which means nobody gets to declare, well, I used to, have, I used to be a big train wreck and now everything's perfect. What we get to say is, God keeps restoring and keeps working in my life to just gradually chip away at these things in my life that have been destructive. God's at work in some way or at a capacity that I'm not perfect and none of us ever will get to be perfect. I mean, it's just we're just constantly got at work in our lives, shaping us into those people, but we're not perfect. We're a work in progress, which means every single person sitting in this room is a recipient or is in need of mercy. The story of Jesus gets muddied by the church sometimes. I mean, sometimes I think the church does a doesn't do a great job, probably for the last hundred or so years, particularly in America, we have this sense where church is kind of good at restricting access to Jesus, like we kind of own Jesus. 
And maybe there's some kind of sense that maybe everybody else, the message that gets communicated sometimes is everybody else needs to receive God's mercy, but not us because we've already got it and we're good. I talked to someone a couple weeks ago who said, tears streaming down my face. I've been told my whole life I'm an abomination. And I don't know where to go. And I said, I said, well, I'll tell you the truth. Either none of us is or all of us is. Because all of us are in need of God's mercy. Every one of us. Nobody is above needing God's great mercy in Jesus. Nobody. Tears just started flowing down her face. I think for us, I, 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 I think for a lot of us, I want to make sure I make this clear too, is that mercy is not an excuse or permission to live however we want. It doesn't simply mean that, well, I have mercy. God's given me his mercy. It doesn't matter what I do. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But I want you to understand the way I think about this. And it's really important, especially as we're talking about being a witness. It's this. So when you talk to people, when, we, when people understand what it means to walk with Jesus, I've never had people say, the reason why I made a lasting change in my life was because I felt the condemnation of other people. Like I just felt constantly less than. I felt like I was always doing stuff wrong. And that became the way in which I decided to change. And it, it has helped me forever. And I'm grateful for those people. Never had it happen. But if there is a community rich in mercy, we can say God has forgiven us and loves us so much that he would give everything he has. That broken people, work in progress kind of people with secrets and regrets and things we're all going through that we need God's help in. If those people can be, cha- those people can be changed because of mercy, then mercy is a fertile ground for people to start deciding they want to live differently. But it's not fear. It's not condemnation. It's mercy. Look then what Peter writes. 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, I mean, he's talking to people, he's saying, there's a part of you that lives in the world that's kind of not of it. You're not as infected or affected by it, but you live in it and you care about it. And so he uses this language as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And remember, he just did this whole thing saying, what makes you a group of people is God's mercy. What defines you is that you are the recipients of God's mercy. And that is the fertile soil by which you start dealing with the things, the 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 sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He continues on, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, for a lot of us, we go, well, I, I don't know if I live a good enough kind of life, so I don't want anybody to know I'm a Christian. But I don't know what I'm supposed to do. There's a part of us that says, well, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm good enough to follow Jesus. I'm not sure he'd want me around. Let me be very, very clear. God says, God calls people who are not perfect to himself in Jesus. You're kind of a train wreck. You're welcome. Your life's not together. You're not a perfect parent. You're not a, you're not a perfect student. You're not a great employee. You're not, you're not conquering. Work. You're not perfect. In fact, there's probably a good case to be made that the only people who don't get God's mercy are people who don't think they need it. So we go, God, I need help. And it's in that, that longing to be helped that maybe God starts to get a hold of us in Jesus and starts transforming us and saying, I want you with me. I'm so, I'm so crazy in love with you. I'm so over the top about you. See, explaining Jesus' transformation 
It's so much simpler when we talk about it in terms of mercy. We can talk about scientific explanations. We can go a little crazy, but all we have to do is say, I don't know. I'm a work in progress. I think it has something to do with Jesus that my life even looks as good as it does, however that looks. (laughs) Stories are told because, and they're the clearest, the best stories are told because the witnesses are rich in mercy. If the church is a group of people who clearly understand that we need God's mercy in order to transform us, then we can include people without asking for their references or prerequisites or that they have certain behaviors, they drive a certain car or they're a certain kind. It's just we can say we can include people without a background check because it's access to Jesus. And we let God's transformative work come around them in a community of mercy. I think if it's a, if it's a community of mercy that we're known for for being, then it becomes a little bit easier to go, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I get people? What am I supposed to do with this? Telling people about the Jesus. What am I supposed to do? How do I do it? Let me just tell you. There's one thing everybody here can do. It's one thing everybody can do, and it's still a little bit, I get that it's courageous. But it's something that says, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't know how to have all the answers, but there's one thing everybody can do. It's this, simply this. It's to invite other people. When they say, when they say, they say things like, what, is it, what, is, what do you do? And you just go, I don't know, but I, I go to this church. And we don't have all the answers, and everybody there is kind of trying to find their way. But something's happening. God's doing something there. People's lives are, are changing. I'm one of them. Invitational. Let me give you a couple things to think about. When, now when people say these phrases, it could be, these are just my own version of these. They could say them in different ways. When they say these phrases, consider an invitation. Okay? When someone says to you, hey, I'm new, I'm new to the area. How can I get connected? I don't know what I'm supposed to do, whatever. I don't know. Would you want to come to church with me on the weekend? You know, now, again, remember, I've never had anybody, because they were invited to something, stab another person in anger. You know, like, Jeff, I really appreciate you visiting me in the hospital. I know you got stabbed. You invited someone to church and keep up the fight. You know, I mean, it's like, no, we don't really, we don't have that. We don't live in that world here. People do, but we don't live in that world. We li- I mean, to simply invite someone who says, hey, I'm new around here. Do you have a place where I get connected? You know what? I don't know if you're into this sort of thing, but would you want to come with me to church? Now, if they say no, they're still honored that you would include them. <laughs> Nobody's like, how dare you? Right? You with me? <laughs> if you hear someone say, I'm going through some transition, I'm going through a difficult time. You know, I don't know if this would help, but would you want to come with me to church? If someone says, I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. Why don't you come to church with me this weekend? Well, is it going to be all weird? Yes, there's a wall in the middle of the room. It's so weird. (laughs) I don't know, but it's made a difference in my own life. I I, I love meeting the friends that you bring to church. And the people that you bring to church don't then say to me, I'm so ticked off at these people. I'm just really ticked. They're always like, I'm really glad I came. doesn't mean that they like are, are instantly all about us, but they're glad that they came. Let me give you a couple senses. These aren't always things where people are super overwhelmed. You hear someone say something like, hey, I just got a job change. Hey, we just had a kid. What are we supposed to do? How do I sleep? You know, like that kind of thing. Parent, you're like, look, I don't know, but maybe there's someone at church that could help. Someone goes, oh my gosh, I have a seventh grader. You know what? I get it. We have an awesome junior high ministry. They're all at camp right now. You want to come? Like, there is a place for these. Look, and it's always the same thing. I don't know, but would you want to come to church with me? 
let me empower you guys to consider that God is, looking, God is looking at you going, I am so grateful that you're part of this community. You have received my mercy. Tell that story and invite people to be a part of that same story. He's looking at us going, who can you invite? I want you to consider something for just a moment. Put these back on the screen. There are people in your life that you know already could say these things to you. They're longing for answers, and you're like, well, I wish they'd come to my church, but they don't. They're going to find their way there. You know, like the doors are always open. You know, you try and drop a hand. I mean, it's like, you don't have to be subtle. <laughs> this isn't a secret club. But I want you to think about those people in your life that maybe are wrestling with some of these questions that you go, what would it look like to say to them, why don't you join me? I don't know how to explain everything, but do you want to come to church sometime? I have to tell you, one of the things I hear at the door all the time when people are new is they say, that they're overwhelmed by the, by the like, warmth of this community of people. I don't know what, but it's always, you know, the people here are so kind. They're so nice. They're so warm. People are longing to be in a group of people who are kind, and that's you. We've worked hard to become that kind of people, and people want to be around that. If anything, they could have a free coffee, and then they could be around warm people. That's good. Okay, and maybe they'll make a decision about Jesus, but there you go. All right, who are those people? This week, maybe you have one conversation that says, I heard you say you're new, or you're going through something, or maybe you're overwhelmed, and why don't you come with me? Let's pray together. I'm going to respond to you. Lord, there's a lot to consider. We're so afraid of being caught off guard by a question we don't know the answer to. We're afraid someone's going to say something we don't know or that they've had a bad experience with Jesus' fan club, that they're a little bit weirded out by us. And yet, Lord, we just want to point people to you. We're people who have been rescued by your mercy. We're people that are finding new hope and new life because you have given to us a chance at that life that is in you and that is full and rich. Lord, who are those people in our life that we might include? Not setting up a bunch of prerequisites, not determining whether or not they're okay to be part of our community, but simply that we just say, would you ever want to come check it out? I know for some of you in the room, not only do you feel sort of unqualified to talk to people about Jesus or to maybe bring them with you, you feel unqualified to be in God's presence itself. And maybe you need to have someone pray over you specifically that they might just put their hands on a shoulder, a hand on your shoulder and just pray over you that you would experience God's rich love and mercy. Some of you need to write something down perhaps and place it in the prayer wall that our prayer team might pray for you during this week. But what marks this community is a group of people who are in need of God's mercy. And that story can be told. And it can be demonstrated when people are invited. Jesus, would you hear our prayer as we sing it to you? Might it embody this idea of the great mercy and grace that you've given to us. Might we live as if it were true every moment of our lives. This attitude and sense of thankful gratitude always, Jesus. In your name, amen.